Hey, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. We're so glad you're listening to our podcast. If you want more information about the church, go to www.clovishills.com or you can download our app in your iTunes or Google Play Store. Enjoy the podcast. This morning's scripture reading comes out of the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1 through 20. My friend Larry is going to come out in a minute. He's going to read from it. And I just want to warn you, it's a long passage, but I wanted um, him to read the whole passage so that we get the context of the whole story. So I invite you, if you're able to, I would love it if you could stand in honor of the word of the Lord and uh, follow along and we will read from God's word. The reading is 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were the priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for the rest of the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head." As she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered her, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way, and she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, And the Lord remembered her. So, in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
You know, I never know who's doing the scripture reading every week. Someone else schedules that. And uh, so Larry uh, Potter showed up last night for uh, the Saturday night service. I said, you're doing the scripture reading of Samuel chapter 1. And we both laughed because here's what I know. Yeah, I know something about Larry you may not know. Um, He has a daughter named Hannah who has been praying for years that she could get pregnant. And um, right now she's six months pregnant with a little baby boy. Um, that she's naming Samuel, by the way. So rad. I mean, who, you can't plan that kind of stuff. So in, anyways, um, it's a lot of fun. Today we're going to talk about hope and uh, kind of some of the places where we hang our hope. Uh, this week I uh, was spending some time with Pastor uh, Esteban Mendezabal who's our pastor out at the Porterville campus that's going to launch in the fall. And um, he was reading a book called The New City Catechism. And he had just started it, and I said, well, what do you think about it so far? He said, well, so far it's pretty good. I've only read the first chapter. And, it, you know, every, every chapter is based on a question. And then it, you know, kind of forces you to contemplate the question. I said, well, what's the question of the day, Esteban? And he said, what is your only hope in life and death? Think about that for a minute. What is your only hope in life and death? See, because if we really ponder that for a moment, we realize that everything on this planet one day comes to an end. No matter what you put your hope on, no matter what you put as the center of your universe, it will end. And the only thing in the end that will exist is Jesus Christ. And what is your hope in life and death? So we're going to talk about hope today. And um, in, in order to really understand what God is saying in his word, many times there's all kinds of things that block us from understanding it. You know, it, inside the Bible is, it, are the words of God. And, and it, it, it's like a jewel. It's like a, a piece of gold. But sometimes it's hidden to us. You know, it's hidden by language. It was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. It's hidden by cultural context, which we don't have. We're modern 21st century people. It's, it's hidden by um, all, all kinds of family contexts and things that are going on. And it's our job to peel away all of those to get to the truth, the nugget of gold that God has for you and I. And we're going to talk about what um, kind of some, some of their cultural hopes are. And then what ours are and what the, what the true hope is. So if you have your outline, you can pull it out. And number one is this, one, a cultural hope. I want to read to you from this passage in Samuel, uh, verses uh, one, or four through seven. I'm going to stop about halfway, Paul, at verse six. And I want to break it down for a minute. But I want you to understand this. Look what it, look what it says. I'm going to talk to you about cultural hope. It says, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife, Penea, or Penina. And to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. She got the big piece of chicken, okay? And the Lord, it says a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Um, You know, in the scripture, we find polygamy is throughout the Bible. Um, As a matter of fact, polygamy was a common practice, not just in the Middle East, but around the world during that time. It was a common practice. It it wasn't that the Bible was endorsing polygamy. Um, It just existed at the time that the book of Samuel was being written and before the book of Samuel was being written. So you have to understand that. Robert Alter is a um, 
theologian. He's a Jewish theologian at uh, Berkeley, believe it or not. And um, he's written a brilliant commentary on the book of Samuel. And in Robert Alter's uh, commentary, one of the things he talks about is that, yes, the Bible never forbids polygamy. It, it never forbade it in the Old Testament. But what you'll find is everywhere you see it in the Old Testament, it always is wreaking relational havoc upon the families. It's never viewed in a good light in the scripture. And what he talks about is that God was taking the cultural institution that everyone believed in, everyone thought was right, everyone thought was good, and he was slowly unending it. He was undermining it in the scripture because everywhere in the scripture it would always point out the relational havoc it it wrecked. Not just on the two wives, but the dude, what are they thinking, is what I always wonder. So, you know, right? So Hannah gets the double portion. She's the favorite. He feels bad for her. And, um, and Penea sees that she's getting a double portion, that she's favored. So she gets jealous. But ladies, ne- in the 21st century, you guys never get jealous, right? No, not here. Not at this church, at least. Maybe at some others. But anyways, look what it says in verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. You can imagine. Here she goes to worship God, and Peninnah is like, oh, you're going to go worship the God that won't give you a son? He must not love you. Now let me explain something about... um, children and and why they had children. See, why they had children back then is completely different to how or why we have children now. See, in in the ancient world, first and foremost, there was a a cultural, it was a socioeconomic reason to have children. You had children, and the more children you had, the more they could work in 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 an agrarian society. And the more children you had, the more set up you would be economically, right? Now, if you had children today because you thought they were going to bring you money, <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Don't do that. Because they don't bring you money. They just take it. So, so, <laughs> so but, but then it was a socioeconomic reason. And the more children a woman had, the more, the more they believed they were blessed by God. Now, we know now that's not really true. That, that bearing children, is, is some of it is, it was based on genetics and, and you know, the, 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 the husband and the, and the wife and, you know, maybe he has some, she's super fertile or he's got super sperm or whatever it is. They, we understand it's different now. But for them, their cultural lens, their reality was that if you had lots of children, you were blessed by God because you would be economically secure. And when you were old, the more children you had, the better they could take care of you. See, Hannah had no children, and she knew her husband Elkanah would die first, and she would be left alone in this world with no means for an income. Also, here's what you have to understand. In the ancient world, it was a very unstable and violent place. At any moment... The, the village you're in, the tribe you're part of, a bigger tribe could just come right down the hill into your village, kill all the men, rape all the women, take all the children away as slaves. And it happened all the time. It was a 
constant reality. We lay in bed at night wondering what's going to happen. Is New Girl going to get canceled this season? They laid in bed wondering if they were going to get raped and pillaged. And the more children you had, specifically sons, the more you had in your tribe, in your village to fight. So women that had lots of sons socially in their tribe were viewed as heroes. They were, they, they were esteemed in the highest because they were able to produce protectors of the tribe. So this is what's going on. Hannah has no sons. She has no children, no economic hope. She has no cultural hope, all of it, because their culture, that's what they hung their hope on. Now we can look at it and go, oh, those silly ancient people, they hang their hope on the silliest of things. But let's be honest. Um, we live in the 21st century, and we may not hang our hope on things like that, but we hang our hope on false things all the time. We put things at the center of our universe all the time that shouldn't be at the center of our universe. See, um, you know, in, in modern culture, we, we don't have children for any of those reasons, right? We have children for our, our own emotional well-being. <laughs> That's funny, too. Some of you are contemplating right now, you want to have children to save your marriage. Don't do that! Um, some of you, you know, you, you have children, and, and it's a way to make you feel proud about yourself. For some of you, it's, you know, if it, we have children because it fulfills, or it, we try and, it tries to fulfill a deep emotional need that we have, to be loved and to love. And um, for many of us, we have, we have children in the 21st century to give us meaning. And it's, it's different than, than it was then. Um, and it's really an emotional hope we have. So number two, if you want to, I want to talk to you about an emotional hope. Because what's been offered to Hannah is cultural hope. That if you have children, you'll be economically well off. You'll be esteemed well. People in the village will think of you well. You'll think of yourself well because you're a hero. Right? But, but, but then in verse 8, I, I find it, before I get into this, so actually, hold on. We're going to pause. Put, everyone press pause for a second. Um, we have any moms in the house today? All right. So I just want to like, okay, I want you to take, because if you're a mom, there, it's something genetic that, that, that's put in you that you feel guilty about everything. So I want you this morning, lay your guilt down, Okay. God loves you right where you're at. Sure, you have not been the perfect mother, but I want to let you know, no one is in this room. You're working with what God gave you, ladies. And, and I, I want you to understand this, because some of you, you're on Pinterest, you're on Facebook, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm a failure as a mother. And you walked in church today, and other people's kids were dressed cuter than yours. You're like, oh my God, I'm a failure. Stop it. God loves you right where you're at. He loves you so much. So there's this emotional hope that's offered to her. You know, here she is, she's broken because she has no cultural hope. And then um, her husband, who means well, but, well, you'll see. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Gentlemen, take notes right now. 
Sometimes we mean well, but we are stupid. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> but he's trying to offer her, you know, you, you have a husband, you have romance. You, you have someone who loves you. And, and here, here's the thing. Sometimes we think if we had someone that loved us, and we put that person at the emotional center, the center of our universe, that that's the thing that's going to make it for us. It's going to make us happy finally. Um, but, it, but it doesn't. And, and here, here's the interesting thing. It doesn't have to be a husband that you put at the emotional center. Sometimes it's that. Or it's, oh, if I had a spouse, or if I, ha- I only had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, then, I, then, I, then I'd be happy. Um, then I'd have meaning. But it could be children. You could put the chil- your children at the emotional, at the center of your universe, right? And um, let, let's be honest. You know, ma- many of us, we live vicariously through our children. Oh, if my, my, my kids could be better at school, then I'd feel good about myself. Um, you know, in, in, in where we live, Fresno Clovis area, the Clov- Clovis Unified School District has 65 employed school psychologists. That's a lot of school psychologists. And um, I'm not knocking school psychologists. Matter of fact, I love our school psychologists. We need probably more school psychologists because here's why. We as parents are crazy. And, and here, here's what happens is we, we start to put our kids at, the, at the, the center of our universe, our grandkids at the center of our universe, you know, and um, we're enrolling them in four different sports. They're in dance, music lessons, destination imagination, robotics, on and on and on. We're running them ragged around town, and we're hoping that if they're good at something, it will give us meaning. And here's what I want you to understand. When we take a person and we make a person, a human being, the center of our universe, here's what's going to happen. No human being can bear that weight. No human being can give you that kind of meaning. And we will crush our children under the weight of our expectations. We will crush our spouses under the weight of our expectations to give us meaning. I had it happen just recently to me, I, where I, I put something else at the center of my universe. And I remember uh, one of my children, decide, who's really good at football, decided not to play football this year. And I was like, what? You're not playing football? You're so good at it. And I was like really bothered. Do you know Why? Because I was finding meaning in what he did. And I had to repent of that. I had to tell him, I'm sorry, son. That's too much pressure on you. That's not fair to you. If you ever want to play football, that's great. If you don't, whatever. See, there's all kinds of emotional hopes we hold on to. We try and put them at the center of our universe. And to be honest, many times they're good things. They're great things. But they're not the ultimate thing that should be the center of our universe. So, um, I want to talk to you about this third thing. It's, it's true hope. What really we should put at the center of our universe. I want to read it to you in um, 
the NIV, and then, and then Paul will put it up in uh, the message translation. Because sometimes different translations say it different, and um, there's no one best translation of the Bible. I want you to understand that, because there, when you translate a language, there's different meanings and nuances that come across. But I want to read it to you in the NIV. It says, once they had finished eating and drinking at Sh- in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Okay, now in a lot of the other modern translations, it says, Hannah arose, okay? And both of those, I mean, it's telling you the literal what it is, but that Hebrew word for Hannah arose, really it means so much more that, it had so much more meaning to it than just she stood up. Arose, really in the original Hebrew language meant she took action, that she flipped a switch in her, in, in her heart. She flipped a switch in her mind. She got up and she took action. Eugene Peterson, in the message, he translates it this way, and I, I love it because I think it's probably the closest to what the Hebrew is trying to say. It says, so Hannah ate, and then she pulled herself together, slipped away quietly, and entered the sanctuary. She pulled herself together. She flipped a switch. See, what she saw was the hope that that, that society offered her culturally, socioeconomically, um, status, all of that, and she knew she, she had to reject it. She saw the emotional hope that, oh, well, maybe I could find meaning in having a spouse and, and being with Elkanah, and, 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 and she rejected that. And she was downhearted, she was sad, but it says that she pulled herself together. I remember um, my father, the, just kind of a, a flip, a switch got flipped in his, in his heart. Uh, my mother died when I was a young man, and um, he was very, very depressed. As a matter of fact, so depressed that I had moved out and I moved back in with him to be around him because my brothers and I were afraid he was gonna commit suicide. We took away all the weapons in the house, all of that, and he just kind of holed himself in the house for six to eight weeks. And I remember one night, I you know, stayed home as much as I could to just be around him, make sure he was okay, keep him company. And I was in my room, I was playing guitar, and um, he comes to the door and he goes, Hey, hey, son, I'm going to go uh, try country line dancing tonight. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> well, yeah, I've never done it before. I thought I'd go line dancing. I was like, this is not my father. What are you talking about? He came and sat down on the bed next to me, and he began to explain. He said, I love your mom so much, and I am so depressed It is killing me, but I am not going to let this beat me. And I can either stay in this house and be depressed and be bitter, or I can get up and be better and figure out how to get better. And I want to tell you something. For the next decade, my dad went dancing six to seven nights a week. (laughs) And... And man, and when you're an old man and you like to dance, you have as many girlfriends as you want. It's letting you know, guys, you pull together. And I remember one night I was like, hey, dad, which, you know, uh, you're going dancing tonight? He goes, you bet. I said, so uh, which one of your girlfriends are you taking? He goes, boy, taking a girlfriend dance is like taking sand to the beach. What are you talking about? <laughs> but he flipped the switch. He arose. He said, I'm tired of living this way. I'm going to do something about it. And see, you, faith with action is the way God calls us. You believe it and then you do it. 
Sometimes you do it and then you believe it, but faith and action always come together. And see, she arises and she, she begins to pray. And what she's doing is, she says, I'm not gonna make having children the center of my universe. I'm not gonna make my husband the center of my universe. I'm not gonna make socioeconomic status the center of my universe. I'm going to put God at the center of my universe. As uh, one of my good friends, Pastor Dar- Darrell Carter says, let's let God be God. I'm gonna put God at the center of my universe. And she prays something. She says in verse 11, I don't have it for you to put up there, but you can look in your own Bible. It says, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you would only look on me in your servant's misery and remember me. That word, Lord Almighty, it's a Hebrew word. It's Yahweh Saboth. And what it means is God of the angel armies. That's that's the, the literal translation, the Lord of hosts. God of the angel armies, the transcendent, powerful God that that could squash me in a moment, that that is the Lord of billions of armies of angels, this God that is so big, so eternal, so far away, infinitely transcendent, but also infinitely tender, that he would care about a barren woman living in a rural village in the Middle East 3,500 years ago. See, God is infinitely big and transcendent, but he is infinitely tender. And she says this, if you only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but, but give her a son, And then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. Do you know what she's saying right there? She's not saying like, I'll raise him to be a musician, man. He'll live in Santa Cruz and have long hair and he'll be all. That's not what she's saying. She's making what the Bible calls a Nazarite vow. See, only uh, people that were born in a certain tribe could be priests. But if you made a Nazarite vow... Um, you could become a, like an assistant to the priest and you would be raised in the temple and uh, Samson was one and you know, he had, you know, with the long hair, that whole thing. And what she was saying is, even if you give me a son, you're still at the center. I'll give him back to you. I won't have the economic hope that he brings because he'll be yours in the temple. He'll have no money to help me. I won't have the so- social hope that a son might bring because he'll never know me. He'll be raised in the temple. I won't have the emotional hope that this child might bring because he'll never know me. He'll be raised in the temple. See, what she was doing was putting God at the center of her universe. And it doesn't say she prayed and then she got pregnant and then she got happy. No, it says that she prayed and she just had peace. And it wasn't until sometime later she got pregnant. See, here's the deal. For many of us, God really is not the end. He's a means to get what we want, our end. I I want you to understand that. God, give me a son so I'll be happy. God, give me the promotion so I'll feel important. God, give me the spouse so I'll feel loved. God, give me the BMW because it looks awesome. God, give me the Martin guitar that doesn't have a ding on it, Michael. God, give me on and on and on. 
And God is the means to my end. But what, what was the question I asked this morning? What is your only hope in life and death? See, really what God wants us to do is flip the script that God becomes the end and everything else in your life is a means to glorify God. And this is what happened with Hannah. She, she saw it, she came alive. She understood that this child, if I even have a child, is a means to glorify you. If I get a promotion, it's a means to glorify you. If I get anything in life, everything else will have its Will, will, will disappear, but you are the true end. And everything is a means to an end. And I'll give you a great example. And I give you this example, not because I'm like super spiritual or, or anything like that. Trust me, I use God as a means to my end all the time. But I can give you an example where I didn't, and it went well for me, and I feel like it changed my life. Um, I was in my, in my 20s, I was a musician, um, we were in this band, we signed a record deal with an indie label, we were touring the country, living the dream. I was making money playing, playing it as a musician, it was so much fun. And I remember uh, just loving it, and um, Atlantic Records began to, to tout us, and they began to scout us out, and we started meeting with Atlantic Records, and they ended up offering us a five album deal. And we were so excited. We're like, this is it. We're going to make it. We're going to be huge. And they're, they're going to, you know, we're going to put you on tour and with all these bands. It's going to be great. And they took us to these really fancy recording studios to, to show us. And they, they were totally, you know, wooing us. And um, they offered us a five-album deal. And then the, um, the A&R rep, as they were offering it to us, he said, here's the thing, though. Um, we love what you, you guys have built this, a great following as an indie band. We love the sound you have. It's very current. It's very this, blah, blah, blah. You know, all the music industry garbage. He said, but here's the deal. You guys are a little too religious. And here's what I want you to know. Um, I wasn't like super spiritual and like this walk on water Christian. But I did know that the whole reason we were in this band was to tell young punk rock kids about Jesus. That, that was the whole reason we started it. We always said that. Um, at every show, no matter where we were, I would get up and I would share the gospel and kids would get saved and sometimes people would throw stuff at us, but kids would still get saved. And it was just, it was what we did. It was why we did it. That the music was secondary, that God was the end and the music was the means. And then they said, well, we love what you wanna do. Here's the record deal. We need you to be less religious. Take, you know, soften your message up. And uh, we, we, we pulled back and we had a band meeting and we decided, you know, it was really hard. We said, uh, we, that's not why we do this. We can't do that. And then they said, Beatty, you're the oldest and most responsible. You call the A&R rep and tell them we can't do it. So I called the dude. I said, hey, um, listen, uh, we'd love to sign with Atlantic Records, but um, that's just not who we are. It's not why we do this. We do this for God, and we, we can't soften our message. And then he proceeded to cuss me out and tell me, I'm an idiot. You're turning down the chance of a lifetime. You guys will never amount to anything in your life. You've wasted it all. And I'm not, I wasn't mad at him because here's what I understood. That was the lens in which he saw the world, that everything was a means to his end. But at that moment in my life, I had some clarity that God was the end and everything else is the means. God is the end. Your children are a means to God. 
not your children. Not the hope of having children. There's some of you here today that um, you're brokenhearted. Coming to a Mother's Day service is, is it, it's like being stabbed in the heart every time because you want children so bad. And I never want to minimize that pain. But I, I, I want you to understand something. God is the end. Your spouse, your job, none of it. You'll, you'll crush them all under the weight of your expectations for it to bring you ultimate meaning in life. So this morning, I want to encourage you to take whatever it is that is your end, and it could be a good thing, and put it in its right place in your life. And put God at the center of your universe. Put Jesus at the center of your universe. For some of you, you've never done that before. For some of you, you're like, yeah, I do it every Sunday. (laughs) This is just a good reminder because I keep putting other stuff there. And I get that. I'm with you. That's why I preach. Helps me remember to put God there. But for some of you, this is the first time this has ever made sense to you. And Jesus said this. He said in Revelation 3.20, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone listens, I'll come in and I'll dine with them. That Jesus is standing at the door of your heart, knocking. He wants to come in and be the center of your universe. The end, not the means to you. It says in John 1.12, but as many as received him, if you receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, that you can receive Christ. This morning, some of you have never done that before. And I want to lead you in a prayer right now. Just you and God. So if you would, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes.